This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. We will be joined in the second part of this hour by Lydia Moland, who is the author of Lydia, uh, Mar- it's not Maria, Mariah. It's Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. We really look forward to speaking with her. First, it is Mayor's Monday here on WHMP, and we have with us the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. So, Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to ask you about last week's event where you welcomed Monty and his marchers to Greenfield, and I'd appreciate your reflections on Monty's march, and I'd note that in today's papers, in the Gazette, and I believe the Recorder as well, there is an article about how Monty's march is reaching its goal of $500,000. Oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see it either. Oh, Nobody tells me anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Monty is now... Okay. Breaking I'm looking, news. I'm Mon- opening up the Green... Uh, the, uh, the, da- Daily Hampshire Gazette as, do you, as we speak. Do you see oh, yeah, it? Here we go. There it is. There we go. Monty, you want to read the headline now that you... Monty's march nets over $492,000. Dateline Hatfield, the 13th annual two-day Monty's march, netted nearly 495000 Different figure than even the headline. So this is a moving target, as, uh, as we yeah. see. But yeah, and we yeah. were so close to that five hundred thousand, which is just a number, everybody. I know, it's but all I, about I the have goodwill engendered for our neighbors in need. I have every confidence you are going to get to that five hundred thousand because contributions still come in, and you can still give your contribution. Yes. You can make your contribution, Monty. How go do we to, do that? Go to montysmarch.com. Yeah, I know my like my martial arts school raised <laughs> over two thousand dollars, but didn't put in the check, and I don't know if they still have. So there's all this money that's still. Still coming in. Circulating. You will get to the half yeah, million dollars. I believe dollars, we will. Which is what, two million meals? That's correct. Well, Madam Mayor, uh, tell yeah. us, you welcomed Monty. The march ends in Greenfield. I'd appreciate your reflections on this and what this money and what the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts means to your city. Well, I always enjoy welcoming uh, Monty and the marchers into Greenfield. Every year I say, well, I'm going to join him in Deerfield, and every year I don't do that. Smart. (laughs) (laughs) I've just decided that I'm going to be at the front of the line when they come into Court Square. (laughs) But uh, it's always great. Everybody, despite being tired as they possibly can be, and I, I, uh, you know, there were some great people in this march. They're all, they all looked really beat by the end of it, and I don't blame them. Uh, yeah, we used to party late into the night after that yeah. thing, but now there's the, it was a 26-mile march, and now it's a 43-mile march. So we basically all get one drink and then yeah. slink yeah. off into Thanksgiving yeah. weekend. Yeah, and I was pleased that the weather was so good. Me but too. No, it was great to welcome, you know, Kristen Aleko and Marquis. Um, aide out here, and she was with her daughter. I don't know when they joined, but the daughter's not very old. They, so. they were in and out the whole time. They were on a, a, a team called Team Taco with my friend Chef Neftali Duran, an indigenous chef from Oaxaca, Mexico, and he's a big oh, food justice cool. advocate. He didn't make it the second day of the march, but she represented with Zing. Oh, good, good, yes. good, good. Well, that and, and Congressman McGovern and uh, now uh, or soon to be Senator Paul Mark, uh, Lindsay Sabadoza, all the all of my political peeps were there, the two reps. Well, Natalie wasn't here this year, but um, Susanna was there. And, you know, I will always think of Paul. He's still in my calendar every month for our standing call. I'll think of him as my rep. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I would like to know this. Um, we heard a lot during the march and in the days leading up to the march and then after about how much money is being raised and how many yeah. meals will be paid yeah. for because of the efforts of Monty and the marchers yeah. and the community. Uh, you know, half a million dollars to raise in two days. That's a heavy that's lift, heavy lift. Yeah. It is an extraordinary accomplishment. It's, it's probably a heavy lift for any one of the Western Mass counties. You know, uh, maybe save Hamden, but Franklin County for sure. And I think we represent pretty well in those contributions. So I'm always happy. And I, Monty may know, I don't know how many meals from, uh, that are actually served in Greenfield. I probably should know that. But I know that several, you know, that the food bank does take care of several of those places where we do serve meals. So, and then there's Kristen. Uh, or Kirsten uh, Levitt with Stone Soup Cafe. I think they benefit from the food bank. Um, 
According to the local hunger facts section of the food bank's website, Franklin County, the average monthly number of people served is 9,711. So yeah. they're serving yeah. uh, about 100,000 a month in the four counties. So it's a, yeah. about 10% of them are from Franklin County, and almost half of them are from Hamden County, which makes sense given the way the population yeah. structured there. So, And sure. for meal, meals provided, um, a million meals in Franklin County over the course of the last year they did it. So we provided, if you want to think of it that way, two years' worth of meals for Franklin County through the food bank. Good. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that's that's just amazing. And uh, like I say, uh, they they help out with uh, Kirsten's Stone Soup Cafe, too. So she, in turn, made a couple of really delicious desserts, and it was there for all the food that was out for everybody, which was wonderful. Um, and I, I, I was happy to see Kachina Lapita be able to uh, participate. Oxen Reed welcoming everybody in. It's a real, it's a real event here in Greenfield, and I, it's one of, you know, part of being mayor is one part ceremonial. So <laughs> consider that one of my ceremonial things that, mm-hmm. that I do. You get, you get to celebrate, and no one really uh, notices that you miss the. Uh... March from Deerfield to Greenfield. You're there at the end. They think you were there all along. That's right. They do. They do. They do. They absolutely do. I mean, at best, I could at least join you at the John Oliver Transit Center and walk up the hill. Yeah, that's the last big hill there, Bank Row. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try next year. I really, really will. <laughs> so, Mayor Wiedergardner, I'd like, I would like to know this. Um, uh, for all the celebration that uh, I think is is right and appropriate and deserved, um, you know, this is a serious problem that's being addressed, hunger, in uh, the four western counties. And I'm yeah. wondering whether in Greenfield and Franklin County more generally, if you can comment on that, whether you see hunger uh, or whether it's a hidden, hidden problem in Greenfield and Franklin County. I personally know that it is not a hidden problem, and I'll tell you why. I get to witness every Tuesday and Wednesday evening when I leave to go home, uh, somewhere sometimes between 4.30 to 6 in the evening, um, there is a line of people out here in the parking lot because the church next door, the Congregational Second Congo Church next door, has been serving a meal um, for, uh, oh, it's, they've been serving meals, well, for as long as I've been mayor. I'm I'm sure, I know it existed before me, but um, it's been Tuesday and Wednesday evenings, and the lines have even gotten just longer. You know, there's people that walk up, there's people that drive up. Um, During the pandemic, I know it must have been a lifesaver for people, Um, and people will come and, you know, they may bring out a bag of, you know, two bags loaded with pre-prepared meals. And I'm, I'm certain that those aren't all going to that one car. I'm sure they're picking up, whoever's doing that picks up for their neighborhood or their church or whatever. Um, so I get to see that and have since day one on a regular basis. So I have some sense of that. And then every Saturday, a Stone Soup Cafe under Kirsten Levitt at the Unitarian Church provides a pay what you can, and if you can't pay anything, you still get fed, a meal um, on Saturday afternoons. And you, uh, we started out back in 2020 uh, with being able to sit inside at the Unitarian Church, and it was very nice. I used to volunteer a lot in 2019 and before when I, uh, when I wasn't mayor <laughs> had 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 more time um, and uh, the indoor door meetings at the in the basement of the church were always wonderful and they always had nice tablecloths and everything it was great but then with the pandemic they started just serving uh, you know picking picking them up outside and then taking them home or wherever and a lot of meal deliveries so a lot of people volunteered to deliver meals around the town and for all I know around the county um, so um, it's hard to miss that line um, snaking down Hope Street 
and around the corner onto around the church onto Main Street. It's very hard to miss that line, and it's many of the same people, many of whom I've known for all the years I've lived here in uh, in Franklin County, um, are there every every Saturday. So I know it's an issue here. It's got to be issues an issue in all the other communities in in Franklin County. I just don't know exactly how they take care of it. Many of the churches do. I can say that the Elks do a meal for the veterans at the Elks Club. They don't do it. The Veterans Organization does. Um, so um, I'm just always kind of amazed at uh, at the at the kindness of people and the dedication uh, of people who whose mission it is to do that. I am moved by the kindness and dedication of the people who help provide for their neighbors. I really think that is something that's a, an important part of our community and really speaks to the fabric of our community. On the other hand, it makes me a little bit crazy to think that here in the wealthiest country in the world, in one of the wealthier states in the nation, uh, we have people in our neighborhoods, in our cities and towns and and in Western Massachusetts, who suffer from food insecurity. We have kids who don't know if they're going to have a dinner. Mm, and yeah. I, I'm just wondering what your reflections are on that aspect of Monty's March, Madam Mayor. Well, again, I, I know that we must be feeding families, um, so I'm sure there are children in there, and I know that the Greenfield Public Schools has had a free and reduced lunch you know, for forever, and they serve throughout the summer. We have just the most extraordinary food service um, organization. In fact, our food service director is receiving an award this week as we speak. It's some sort of, well, not as we speak, it's tomorrow, but some sort of food service award given by, I don't remember who, but anyway, for their part in it. So, yes, it's always important that the children get fed, and uh, we did that a lot during the pandemic. Even though we didn't have school, we still served lunches uh, during the pandemic. Um, I'm going to tell you a little story about my, quickly, my niece in California in Contra Costa County, right next door to Sonoma, um, her husband um, feeds the homeless people in that very, very upscale part of California. My niece is not, I would say, solid middle class, but he feeds them out of his home. He, three days a week, his kitchen in his house turns into a meal prep site, and he feeds all of the homeless. They know to come up to their back door to the fence, and he gives them soup and a sandwich every week, and I can't remember how many days a week it is. It's not that many. It's two or three days a week. Every now and then he says some of them will show up when he's not fixing a meal just because they're hungry or they want to talk to him. So it's funny what individuals do. And he's not a young man. He's in his early 70s. So, um, But he had a very hard life, and uh, this is how he gives back. That's a wonderful story. We are speaking with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner. It is Mayor's Monday here on WHMP. We'll take a quick break. We'll be, back, be right back. We're going to talk about the community coming together. You're going to want to hear about this event. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We all know how food insecurity affects families all over the Pioneer Valley. That's why the United Way of Pioneer Valley is asking all of us to be extra generous this year on Giving Tuesday, November 29th. Your Giving Tuesday gift will help the United Way's Feed a Family Fund keep giving essential food supplies to those in need right here in the Pioneer Valley. This year's effort will not only help feed families here at home, but also families in Puerto Rico affected by Hurricane Fiona. So this Giving Tuesday, November 29th, give generously to the United Way of Pioneer Valley so they can continue the important work they do all year long. 
Welcome the arrival of the new year in the heart of historic Old Deerfield at the Friends of Deerfield Jubilee. On New Year's Eve, we're kicking off a year-long celebration of Deerfield's 350th anniversary. Enjoy a gourmet dinner, cash bar, raffles, and music by the O-Tones of Northampton. Tickets are $100 or $180 for two. For tickets and more information, please visit friendsofdeerfield.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Greenfield Savings Bank, AFI Furnishings, and Ralph's Blacksmith Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, former college athlete and now arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm proud to be one of the board-certified team of doctors who's ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury, from shoulders and elbows to knees and ankles and everything in between. With convenient locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and Northampton, you can trust we'll give you the best bona fide care. So visit anyortho.com to schedule your appointment today because at New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we help get you back in the game. Need a ride to the doctor? Tech support? Pictures hung? Looking to connect with others in the community? At Northampton Neighbors, our goal is to help seniors live independent, fulfilling lives by providing connection and support along the way. We are free of charge and offer a range of social and volunteer opportunities, as well as services for members 55 and older in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. Membership in Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. It's about engaging in place. This place, the city of Northampton. We welcome one and all to join, volunteer, or donate to Northampton Neighbors. Together, we can create the community we all want to live in, now and in the future. Find us at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or by calling 413-341-0160. Thank you. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedergartner. This is Mayor's Monday on WHMP, as it is every Monday. And I would appreciate going back and sharing with our listeners what we were talking about during the break, Madam Mayor. Uh, One topic we touched on was your podcast. You are, well, wow, you're you're a a celebrity, a media celebrity, as well as the mayor. I don't know about that yet. I I don't know about that. I can't claim to be a media celebrity, but we do have a podcast called Mayor's Roundtable, and it takes place right here at the roundtable in my office. Um, The next one will drop, as they say, um, on December 1st. And uh, you can get it wherever you get your podcast. Supposedly, I can't remember the the groups that we do this particular one through. Uh, I suppose if you rattled off a couple of names, I could probably tell you it was either that or not. But anyway, uh, and it's always available on our website, too. So this month, coming up, we'll be with Energy and Sustainability Director Carol Collins, who is fabulous, and she is ours here in Greenfield, Um, and she's talking about all the different ways that you can conserve energy this year and also take advantage of the, oh God, what, Inflation Reduction Act and all of the energy savings um, grants and so forth that are available uh, through those, so... Um, it's a very, it's meant to be very informative at this time, at the very beginning of the heating season to, for, you know, anybody who's listening, really. So. The, the podcasts, you're going to make them, record them, uh, did I hear correctly, once a month? Once a month, yes. And uh, Aaron uh, Kopek, uh our communications director, is a former radio guy, so he has all of his own equipment that he sets up here in my office. and It's kind of fun. 
And yeah, well, I, I, Monty, did you just did you just hear that the mayor discovered that the radio thing was kind of fun? Now that she's doing her own podcast, but didn't didn't really have that. Wasn't that effusive about how much fun this was? Yeah, well, you know, that's the way it you goes. You could come and do your own show. It wouldn't be the first mayor that left the the mayoral office and then started a radio show. Being good oh. company with Buddy Cianci and <laughs> oh dear, I'm pretty sure somewhere in there he did yeah. too. But anyway. Yeah, right. Um, no, it is. It's fun, and that uh, you know, I was once a journalist, and once one, always a one. So, um, it, it you know, it it sharpens those interviewing skills. Well, I think it's a really terrific public service uh, because people obviously can access the podcast at when convenient for them, and these are all about topics that are directly relevant to gov- government and governance. Uh, of- Pretty much. Not exclusively, and oh, then there's Danny Letourneau's um, Municipal Minute. She's the ad in between the two segments, and she's giving her little one-minute snippet about, you know, government. Yeah, the Municipal Minute. uh, That alliteration with minute comes in handy for a number of us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So let me me ask you this. Uh, We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, We were talking before we went on the air about the community coming together, a virtual event, and I would appreciate it if you could share with our listeners what you had shared with Monty and me. Oh, sure. Uh, tonight is the first night of three um, with um, a group. Uh, uh, it's called Dialogues Across Differences, a community conversation around race, gender, equity, and whatever topics come up. It's facilitated by Tanisha Arena of Rise from Social Justice and um, uh, Jack Patrici of Grow a New Heart. They're both very experienced um, facilitators who work with uh, Reverend Andrea Evasion as well. And that's where I got, I, uh, it, it's something that I'm doing. Uh, it's sponsored by the mayor's office. Uh, tonight is the first one, and I, I really... I haven't had a preview of what it's going to be, but they tell me they know what they're doing, and I don't doubt that one bit from talking to Tanisha. So it starts at 5.30. It is virtual. Um, You can um, find it on the Greenfield website calendar. Uh, So you can, it's a Zoom, uh, and I, you know, I'm trying to think there's, I feel like there's another place where it's published, but it's called, uh, you know, it starts at 5.30. It's the first one. The next one is the 5th of December. And then we skip a week and go to, oh, I forget. What is it? It's, uh, Monday, December 19th. Yes, the 19th. And this is a community conversation about difficult topics, about yes. race, class, yeah. and gender? Right. Apparently, they have perfected a system whereby they can teach people how to talk to one another, not at one another, how to talk with one another, you know, not at one another, which is probably a skill that we could certainly use here in Greenfield a lot. (laughs) You know, if it gets people off of uh, social media and on to some place where they can have regular conversations and learn how to how to speak with one another respectfully while not necessarily agreeing, then I'm all for it. And again, the first one of this series of community coming together is when? Tonight at 5.30. And it's a virtual, it's a Zoom um, meeting. And and people can find how to make the connection on the uh, City of Greenfield website? They can, and I think the recorder also ran an article mm, end of last week. Maybe it was Saturday, even Saturday's paper, on it with the um, with the shortened link in it as well. So it must be out there on the recorder website somewhere as well. Okay. On that positive note, we will leave it. We have been yeah. speaking with the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedergartner, on Mayor's Monday. Thank you, Madam Mayor, for being with us every month. Well, thank we- you. It was a pleasure today. Well, thank you so much. We'll speak soon. I know. Rocks. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Activists are looking to establish a reparations commission in Northampton that would be similar to efforts in Amherst. Amherst has committed to spending $2 million over the next 10 years from cannabis tax revenue for their reparations program. The Northampton Reparations Committee started a change.org petition asking the city council to establish a similar commission. The group says they believe that repairing past and current harms will help build a healthy and diverse Northampton. Whole Foods will no longer be selling Maine lobster after sustainability organizations Marine Stewardship Council and Seafood Watch both cited concerns about risks to rare North Atlantic right whales from fishing gear. Entanglement in gear is one of the biggest threats to the whales. The company's decision to stop selling lobster drew immediate criticism in Maine, which is home to the U.S.'s largest lobster fishing industry. And Monty Belmonte is back in studio after wrapping up Monty's March last week. Monty shared some thoughts on this year's 43-mile march to end hunger. I made it to 43 miles. I feel well-rested after the Thanksgiving break. What really warms my heart is all the school groups that came out to participate in this that incorporated food insecurity and hunger issues into their curriculum, and hopefully those kids will work towards a future where we don't have to do these kind of ridiculous publicity stunts. Over $492,000 has been raised, which will provide close to 2 million meals, and donations are still being accepted at montysmarch.com. Good morning, a little patience as the sun gradually appears. In fact, it may be the afternoon until we see partly to mostly sunny skies. Breeze a high of 48 to 52, mostly clear tonight, overnight low 20 to 26, mostly sunny tomorrow 42 to 46, rain returns on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Transhibega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La salida de la presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes, Nancy Pelosi, fácilmente podría haber llevado a un vacío de poder en el que una gran cantidad de legisladores ambiciosos, viejos y jóvenes, lucharon públicamente por la oportunidad de liderar a los demócratas de la Cámara. En cambio, una nueva generación, los representantes Hakeem Jeffries, de 52 años de Nueva York, Catherine Clark, 59 de Massachusetts, y Pete Aguilar, de 43 años de California, casi con certeza serán elegidos para los tres puestos principales de liderazgo esta semana, sin un desafío ni mucha fanfarria. Hubo un par de baches en el camino. Algunos miembros más jóvenes están amargados porque el líder de la mayoría, Jim Clyburn de Carolina del Sur, de 82 años, optó por permanecer en el liderazgo en lugar de seguir a Pelosi, también de 82 años, y al líder de la mayoría, Stanley Hoyer, de 83, hasta el ocaso. Pero en general, Pelosi y su casi seguro sucesor, Jeffries, han podido orquestar un paso fluido de la antorcha de una generación a la siguiente. En otras informaciones, los viajeros estadounidenses pueden estar familiarizados con los avisos de viaje del Departamento de Estado de los Estados Unidos. Pero ¿alguna vez se ha preguntado cómo los gobiernos de otros países advierten a sus ciudadanos acerca de venir a los Estados Unidos? Después de todo, las tasas de muertes relacionadas con armas de fuego en los Estados Unidos están aumentando y los tiroteos masivos en el país se han vuelto comunes y ocupan titulares en todo el mundo. Los posibles visitantes al país no están siendo advertidos por completo como si Estados Unidos fuera una zona de guerra activa, pero el panorama no es halagador. Algunos de los países que describen la situación de violencia de armas, terrorismo doméstico, así como tensión racial, como advertencia para turistas de otros países, incluyen a Alemania, Australia, Canadá, Francia, Israel, Japón, México, Nueva Zelanda y el Reino Unido. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. <coughs> We welcome to the show Lydia Mullen, whose new book is Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. I think many of our listeners probably saw the article in the Gazette on Saturday, which was a an article and a review by Steve Ferrer, uh, A Radical American Life, New Biography Shines Light on Abolitionist and Writer, writer Lydia Mariah Child, who once lived in Florence. And I, I would like to ask uh, uh, the author of the book who joins us, Lydia Mullen, and we should note that she's a professor of philosophy at Colby. She has been uh, published in many academic journals, and this book is anything but academic. It is really accessible. It is just brilliantly written. It has gotten superb reviews in the Wall Street Journal uh, and the New York Review of Books, and she is going to be presenting 
through Historic Northampton this Wednesday, November 30th at 7 o'clock. And you should, I think, uh, let me suggest strongly, you want to join this Zoom event. Go to Historic Northampton, and you can sign up for it. Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life, a Zoom presentation by Professor Lydia Mullen. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for this book, which is just just really astounding. I just uh, And I must say that when I was reading the, the uh, reviews, uh, that I had a question, and it's a question that you raise in your own personal preference. And I often ask authors if they would be kind enough to read a bit of the book so we can have a sense, a taste of what it, what it sounds like, the mixed metaphor, sorry. Um, but I, I would appreciate it if you would set up for us, uh, Lydia Mullen, a piece, the part that I've asked if you would share with our listeners, uh, and then read us uh, the, those two short paragraphs. So thank you very much. Thanks for the book, and thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's such an honor to be with you, and I'm very excited to talk a little bit about this story, not just about Lydia Mariah Child, but about how I discovered her. So a very brief setup to this would just be that after the 2016 election, I was looking for a new research project. I've written in German philosophy most of my life, but I decided I wanted to do a new project about my own country and about women in particular. So I had this distant memory that women had been important forces in the abolitionist movement to, to um, end slavery in the 19th century. And I thought in order to um, do something like that, you would have to be thinking philosophically. You'd have to ask questions like what is justice and what is equality and how should a person live? So I went to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe Institute at Harvard um, and just asked them to help me find some women who could help me think about the origins of abolition in and people who are thinking philosophically about ending slavery. So a very um, helpful librarian there handed me a box of letters and I saw letters by people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Louisa May Alcott, people whose names I knew, um, but then the following happened. So here I'll start reading from the book. So here I've, I've found one letter that stood out to me. The letter was clearly written by one activist to another. It was affectionate, firm, and principled. It balanced self-deprecating humor with gentle reproach. It deftly applied wisdom gained from a life of anti-slavery activism to the newer cause of women's suffrage. Its perfectly formed sentences testified to a clarity I craved. The handwriting was gorgeous. It was signed L. Mariah Child. I had no idea who that was. Reader, I Googled her. What I found stunned me. Lydia Mariah Child had written the first book-length argument against slavery in 1833, a book so progressive in the cause of abolition and so scathing in its attack on Northern racism that Boston society ostracized her. She had been the first female editor of a major American weekly political journal. She had written a two-volume history of women and a three-volume history of religion. When she realized that her country needed guides to home economics, parenting, nursing, or aging, she wrote those too. She had tangled publicly with politicians and used her body to shield abolitionist speakers from violent mobs. When her marriage threatened to break her spirit, she risked scandal by living apart from her husband, managing nevertheless to forge a love story that ended only when he died in her arms. She even wrote over the river and through the wood. How had I never heard of this woman? And that is my question. And, and I, I don't mean for you to try to explain my ignorance, but it's the question <laughs> I had when I saw the book and I saw the reviews, which is, how had I never heard of this woman? She was really important. What happened to her in the history and the telling of uh, slavery and abolition and the Civil War? What happened? Yeah, I think it, it is a question that I still don't have the best possible answer to, but here are a few guesses. One is that a lot of it had to do with gender. So there were very famous male abolitionists who were louder and had more sort of public acclaim all the way through their careers, including as speakers. 
women at the beginning of the abolitionist movement really struggled to be allowed to speak. And that would have been one of the ways that people really became famous. Um, and she just wasn't first initially wasn't allowed that. And then I think wasn't particularly interested in public speaking. But I think honestly, the, the uh, another important reason is that by the end of her life, so she lived all the way through the Civil War, she lived long enough to see Reconstruction fail. So she lived long enough to see that Black Americans were not being given any kind of reparations for the harms that they had um, suffered. And she she watched violence breaking out across the South in ways that she correctly predicted would um, cause racial conflict for the foreseeable future. And she hated what she called lion hunting. She did not think that abolitionists should turn themselves into heroes who were triumphant at the end of slavery because she saw that there was so much more work to do um, in, to promote racial justice. So when she died, she left just brutally Spartan instructions for her funeral. She didn't even want flowers. She didn't want speeches. She didn't want, so even though she was internationally famous, when she died, um, there was very little publicity and she resisted people's attempts to write biographies of her, which is ironic for me to say, having just written a biography of her. Um, but anyway, so I think there was a part of her own um, sense of failure around the failure of Americans really to address racial justice, um, combined with a sense that she didn't want to be turned into a hero, that meant that she was very quickly forgotten after the end of her life. We are speaking with Lydia Moland, whose new book is Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. She will be presenting via Zoom, presented by Historic Northampton this Wednesday, November 30th at 7 p.m. Go to Historic Northampton. You can sign up for what I am sure is going to be a really quite astounding and, I think, educational and uh, event that you don't want to miss. I'd like to ask you this. Um, uh, Lydia Mariah Child... Uh, and she's, the name was spelled Maria, but pronounced Mariah, as you point out in the book. Yes. Um, uh, had a strong connection to Western Massachusetts and Northampton in particular, uh, and a history that I didn't know either. So share that with our <laughs> listeners, if you would, please. Yes. So she spent the early 1830s then writing this book, which got her in so much trouble because it really attacked Northerners for the racism that she pointed out made Southern enslavement possible. Um, after that, she threw herself into all kinds of writing and activism, as I mentioned, you know, throwing herself in front of mobs to shield abolitionist speakers who were being attacked. But then at a certain point, it became very clear to all abolitionists that that kind of writing and speaking wasn't working fast enough. So they needed other ways of fighting slavery. Child was married to someone named David Lee Child, who had a lot of different professions. But one thing that he decided to do in the mid 1830s was to go to Europe to learn how to farm sugar beets. And the idea was that he would come back with this knowledge and help turn sugar beets into sugar and thereby um, undermine the cane sugar plantation industry. So the idea was that if slavery was surviving in the South in part because sugar was such um, a, a, a rich product and so in demand, that if they instead could grow sugar beets and turn that into sugar, that they could undermine slavery's economic success. It's a pretty so smart they, idea. That's right. And they, they weren't wrong about um, about sugar beets. So now sugar beets are an, an immense source of sugar for all of us. Um, but so David went to Europe, learned all of these skills, came back, and they moved to Northampton to try this experiment. So there they were um, doing something that no one in the United States had ever done, growing sugar beets to turn them into sugar. Long story short, it failed. Um, it was an entrepreneurial success insofar as he did make sugar out of beets, but they went bankrupt because he had to take on so much debt to fund his machinery and to fund his, um, you know, it's very hard to turn something that everybody knows how to use into something different. So if it's a pantry staple, but now it needs to be packaged differently and marketed differently, um, that just didn't work. So they spent a couple of very hard and ultimately unhappy years in Northampton trying to make that work. She was unhappy, meaning uh, Lydia Mariah Child, about a fair amount of the politics of Northampton. 
Tell us more about that. Yeah, so she had been told leaving Boston that she would find an abolitionist community in Northampton, and that turned out just really not to be the case. So there were people who were marginally anti-slavery, but very few people who thought, as abolitionists did, that slavery should end immediately and without compensation to enslavers. And part of the reason for that was that people in Northampton depended on Southern tourism, especially in the summer. So Southerners would come up to, you know, cool off a little bit in the summer. Um, Northampton was then as now beautiful, pastoral. They felt like this was a good place to come and they would bring their enslaved people with them. Um, and this became an enormous source of tension between them and these uh, vacationing Southerners and the abolitionists who were in Northampton. Um, because people like child would use the opportunity to try to convince these enslaved people to emancipate themselves by not going back to the south with their enslavers and there was one case in particular that became very tense over a woman who was enslaved and wanted to take the opportunity not to return to the south um, but she still had children in South Carolina and her enslavers made it very clear to her that if she went back, if she, if she stayed in the North, she would never see her children again. Of course, there was no guarantee that she would ever see her children again, even if she returned to South Carolina, because her enslavers could sell her children from her at any time. But anyway, that was one um, sort of very tense incident that exemplified for child how there was a lot of toleration for enslavers and for enslavement um, in Northampton. Um, and that, and sometimes people were very frank with her. They would say, yeah, I'm as much against slavery as you are, but I make my income from southern tourists. So please don't upset them because then our economy will collapse. And that for her was just a very hard, I mean, we see that all the time now over any number of ethical issues. Um, it's very hard if an ethical issue is up against an economic issue. Tourism was just one way in which the North and Massachusetts and Northampton was in fact deeply part of the Southern plantation and chattel slavery, which you touch on in your book, more than touch on. And I would appreciate it if you would explain that because I think it's something we forget about. We say, oh, those evil Southerners and their plantation owners, and they were in my judgment. But that said, we were, we, the North, was, were complicit uh, and were, and the North was deeply involved in this system. So, so perhaps you could uh, give us a brief overview of that. Yes, and, and this is something that Lydia Maria Child was so determined to point out to everybody every single chance she got that Northerners have way too often been pretty convinced of our moral superiority and tend to think of slavery and then racism as a Southern problem. And she was absolutely convinced that we would never address um, what was at the heart of our own complicity unless we were willing to acknowledge how much um, we perpetuate these problems. So many Northerners in Boston and elsewhere made their fortunes off of the slave trade. There were slave ships that went back and forth um, that left from the North and including up in Maine where I live. Um, so there was that. Lots of people made early fortunes and, and really amassed generational wealth by benefiting from the slave trade. And there was enslavement in every one of the 13 colonies when the, um, uh, when the revolution began. And then even after there was no active slave trade, many Northerners made their fortunes on cotton production. So you can think about um, factories in Lowell and up and down the East Coast, um, sometimes making um, clothing for enslaved people themselves. So there was an enormously entrenched interest in the North for slavery not to end and certainly not to end too quickly. So many people thought that if slavery ended immediately, the Southern economy would collapse and so would the Northern economy. And then there were also very clear ways in which Northern politicians were complicit in the continuation of slavery because they wanted so badly for the United States to remain united. And that was, you know, sometimes for patriotic reasons, but just as often for political, um, politically self-interested or economic reasons. So many times when slavery would expand, Northern politicians would compromise with Southern politicians to allow that expansion for reasons that benefited the North politically. So there were many ways in which that kind of complicity was obvious once you started looking 
but if you go at these questions with a lens of we're the good ones, they're the bad ones, you can ignore and excuse those very easily. We are speaking with Lydia Mullen. She has a presentation that you really want to attend uh, at and through Zoom at Historic Northampton this Wednesday, November 30th at 7 o'clock. Her new book is Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. We're going to continue our conversation right after this break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. I see somebody dressed up as uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer running. We have uh, someone as a Christmas tree. It yes. looks like they are wearing pine needles. Yes. I don't know if that makes it more or less fun to run in. This Sunday, the hot chocolate run for Safe Passage is back. And WHMP will be there live, broadcasting from the run in downtown Northampton. Safe Passage is the Hampshire County organization addressing domestic violence. you still got time to sign up to run, walk, or volunteer. Then share your fundraising page with family and friends to create year-round support for survivors of domestic violence. Join us live in person in downtown Northampton this Sunday, or join us right here on WHMP for the live broadcast of the Hot Chocolate Run for Safe Passage. When you look at this event, does it say something to you about Northampton as a community? It's a remarkable testament to what people can do when they're all working on the same issue. WHMP's support of the Hot Chocolate Run is made possible by Whalen Insurance Northampton. Local people, local service, local insurance. At American National, we understand the tried and true farm and ranch lifestyle. And what's important to you is important to us. You deserve an insurance plan custom made to meet all the specific needs of your agribusiness operation. American National offers flexible farm and ranch policies with package options to help better protect your livelihood. We're right by your side. For more information and to connect with a local American National agent, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. My dad, Russell Cooper, started Cooper's Dairy in 1936 at the age of 18. As a kid, I'd load bottles into the bottle washing machine or right in the tanker truck to pick up the milk. My father got up at 2 in the morning to make sure all the home delivery routes had been covered. When the milkman era ended, people started to call a location of the corner Main and Chestnut in Florence, Cooper's Corner. In 1974, dad bought State Street Fruit Store in Northampton. People used to call it Charlie's back then. Soon, Duyard's Barbershop next door became State Street Deli, and we built State Street Wines and Spirits on the other side. Hi, I'm Rich Cooper, and I've been helping to keep Coopers and State Street committed to our Valley neighbors and farms my entire life. And now, it's time for the next generation to take over. Don't worry, it'll still be quick in, quick out every day of the year, but the next time you run out, you might run into Mike Natale. He's a Florence native, and he'll be taking things from here. Maybe Mike will let me host some wine and cheese tastings for customers, or I suppose I could just be a volunteer greeter at the door. On behalf of the Coopers family, I want to say thank you for supporting us these last 86 years. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success. As we enter the season of giving, thank you for considering a gift to Junior Achievement. Throughout November, when you make a donation of $25 or more to JA of Western Massachusetts, you will be entered into a raffle for a pair of Boston Bruins Winter Classic tickets at Fenway Park. To make a donation, visit jawm.org forward slash donate to make a gift you can be proud of. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Lydia Mullen, whose new book is Lydia Mariah Child, A Radical American Life. She will be presenting through Historic Northampton by Zoom at 7 o'clock this Wednesday, November 30th, again at Historic Northampton, where you can sign up to be uh, part of this, uh, I think, extraordinary event, a person who was really important in the history of Northampton. Now, you told us before... Lydia Mullen, that Lydia Mariah Child went, she lived in Northampton, she was really important here, she wrote one of the most important books about slavery and the anti-slavery argument, um, and she came to Northampton, and she found things were not here as they were, well, advertised to be. Maybe you could read us a sentence or two, and then I want to get to what, what she did and what happened when she went to New York, but so people can hear a bit more of what the book sounds like, if you would, please. Of course. So this is child um, writing after she moves to Northampton. I was told that two thirds of the town were abolitionists. It may be so, but they keep wonderfully to themselves. The reality they soon learned was bleaker. 
Northampton was full of people who claimed to be abolitionists, but who cared more for religious conformity and the appearance of respectability than for ending slavery. Reform work here was going to be a challenge. Sometimes the hardest people to convert are those who think that they are already saved. Tell us a bit more, if you would, please, about how David Ruggles, Sojourner Truth, and uh, those important abolitionists uh, fit into this story that she told and the arguments she made against slavery. Yes, and those of you living in Western Massachusetts are so lucky to have the David Ruggles Center in historic Northampton, places where you really can learn that history. Um, So after Lydia Mariah Child left to go to New York to edit the National Anti-Slavery Standard, her husband David um, stayed behind to continue their sugar beet farming experiment. And some historians, including local historians there where you are, have determined that they helped, that the Childs helped lay the foundation for David Ruggles to move to historic Northampton. So it's not entirely clear, but it seems that child, that Lydia Mariah Child encountered him in New York and then laid the groundwork for him to go to Northampton in part just to try to recover his health. And that is, that's partly how Sojourner Truth ended up there as well. And I think that's really important um, always for us to remember that white abolitionists like the Childs were always instrumental, but they were always building on the work done by people like David Ruggles and Sojourner Truth. Um, and insofar as they themselves were complicit in some of the problems that the abolitionists caused, it's also important to recognize that they tried sometimes just to help black abolitionists recover from some of the harms that they were experiencing. You say she was a radical. She lived a radical life. Did that make her a supporter of John Brown, for example? How far did her radicalism go? Yeah, that was such a complicated chapter in her life. She was a radical insofar as she espoused immediate abolitionism um, without compensation to enslavers, but she did not ever think violence should be used in any cause, even abolition. So when John Brown launched his bloody slave insurrection in Virginia in 1859, she was deeply conflicted. She She wished that he had not used violence, but she was very moved by his willingness to give his life for the cause of ending slavery. And so what she did was help him in his, in the time between the insurrection and when he was executed, wage a war of words against politicians in Virginia. So there was a very long and dramatic letter exchange between her and first the governor of Virginia, and then a Mrs. Mason um, on the subject of whose fault it was that John Brown had thought that violence was necessary. Um, those those letters are just fiery, and they are um, a kind of calling of a lifetime of arguments that she had made against slavery. And then she published the whole thing as a tract, all of her letters and the responses, um, and published them, 300,000 copies of that sold. Lydia Mullen will be with us and you this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, through Historic Northampton, presented by the Ruggles Center and Historic Northampton. Thank you so much for your book. Thank you for your time. For This is an enormous contribution, and I really appreciate you and the book. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, health care, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. CNA is like family you can trust that gives you hope and confidence that there is always support for various situations. They help dreams come true. Do you want to be a part of Center for New Americans? Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. Center for New Americans, with offices in Amherst, Northampton, and Greenfield. Talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.